Good evening. I uh, want to let everyone know that it was a close vote, uh, but we voted and we're going to allow Tom and Nellie to come back. <laughs> it was close. Glad to have you, both of you, seriously. We love you to death. We're glad you're here. The song we just got through singing has been a one of, the, you know, one of those old standard songs that was written back in the 70s, but yet it's always been a very powerful song in what it had to say as it brought forth the message of how, because he lives. The statement or the verse in the Bible that tends to go along with what is said in that is John 14, verse 19. Christ is in the upper room with his disciples, meeting with them for the last time before we know what would inspire afterwards and realizing he knew they were very scared and upset and worried about what was going on next or what was going to happen next. Even they knew something was up. And he kept reminding them as he began, letting off their hearts be troubled. In other words, hang in there. We're going, you're going to get through all of this. It's going to be rough, but we'll make it. In verse 19 in chapter 14, he says, After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In other words, giving that, those men in that upper room that night some encouragement, consolation, and so forth says, even if they take your life, you will live beyond this one. There is that place far beyond description that lies on the other side. So this evening, let's look for a moment at some things, but we want to concentrate basically on that chorus, which simply reminds us, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, and life is worth the living just because he lives. When you think about that for a moment, because he lives, we would say, life is not futile. We're familiar with the fact that futile simply means you never will succeed, you're useless, vain, hopeless, however you want to describe it, no purpose, and you're completely ineffective. Society tends to look upon individuals who do not have multi-talents, who are not, as we would say, smarter than the average bear, so to speak, who are able to do great and mighty things to society unless you're in that category. All you'll ever end up being in life is a worker bee. That's all you're worth for. So you might as well get used to yourself living your life knowing that all you're going to be able to do is the menial task of life that no one else wants. That's society. And basically what they're saying to anyone, if if you've got one talent, maybe one or two, and that's about all you have, you know, you're useless. We don't need you. You're in our way. Get out of the way, and it would be best in some cases if you just went ahead and died and got out of, and quit breathing our air. Society has no use for anyone unless basically multi-talented and multifaceted what they're able to do in life. But here in this statement, and only in others, we find one thing that is very important. Because Jesus lives, our lives will never be wasteful 
are futile or useless. One of the things our Savior makes plain as it were through his teachings from the Sermon on the Mount all the way through up to the time of his crucifixion. He makes it plain unto all those that would listen to him there at the time he actually spoke the words and all through the years all of us who continue to read the word of God reminds us of one thing he said in that same upper room. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. But watch it. And my Father will love him. What else, Christ? And we will come to him and make our abode in him. Notice in that statement that Jesus makes to the disciples, he doesn't say, now unless you got multi-talents, unless you're just oozing with all kinds of great abilities, they would be fantastic to further the borders of the kingdom, don't listen to me. No, he didn't say that, did he? He said, if anyone, if you got one talent or multiple, Christ saying unto you, I can use you. So it makes no difference if you're only able to write a card to someone who's sick or make a phone call. Christ says, I'll use you. Society says you're worthless. Christ says, you're my kingdom, you're great. Why? Was the one talent man in that parable condemned for having one talent? No. He was condemned for what? Not using it. That was what he was condemned for, not having the one talent, not using it. So Christ has reminded all of us, if anyone, that's anyone in the human race from the time he spoke the words till the end of time, anyone who loves me will keep my word. And the result of that is my Father and I will dwell within him through the word. We'll make his life useful, powerful, and great and mighty for the cause of Jesus Christ. Because what we're learning is, is when Christ dwells within us through this mighty word, our lives will never be hopeless nor futile. Again, as Paul wrote to his brethren at Ephesus, he emphasized the fact he said, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Why? By doing so, you're rooted and grounded in love. Notice there, Paul reminds us again that love is the anchor. Love is that which holds us. Love is why the Father wants you to be a part of His kingdom. That's why He died for the whole human race, not for elected few. He died for everyone. And when He says, come unto me, there's no prince saying, unless you're multi-talented, don't waste my time. Anyone. Anyone. So we have, because we live, we have peace that just surpasses all understanding. Paul writing to his brother in Philippi said, simply stated this fact in 4 7, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Basically, Paul was saying, I'm talking about something that there's not enough words in the world to describe. I cannot fully give you what it means to have the peace that comes from God. It surpasses beyond all that I could ever describe. We talk about that, the love of God. There are not enough pens in the world to write everything down about the love of God. And Paul's saying the same thing about God's wonderful peace in our lives when he dwells within us. There is no comprehension. You cannot fully describe what is going on. It will guard our hearts and minds. 
but probably the greatest statement ever made on having peace within ourselves is a child of God came for Christ himself. Again, in that upper room. In that same 14th chapter, this time in verse 27, it says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Christ has put it straight. You can't buy this. World's peace. What is the peace the world gives? Peace paper, two countries signed against each other, hoping they'll never declare war on one another. That's about as far as you can go. One of them usually end up breaking it. Or put something in peace between two people or two families. Whatever it may be, it's usually set up on the fact we promise we won't hurt one another. That's about as far as it goes. And you can't, it's hard to enforce because somebody will break it. Christ says, I'm leaving you a peace that is beyond description. And he said, do not let your hearts be troubled and don't ever be afraid. Then the Apostle Paul reminded us, he did not give us a spirit of what? Fear. Did not give us a spirit of fear. Another thing is we look at our, our life as a child of God. It's not futile because God is watching us. There's never a moment of any day that God's never, is not, it's off somewhere away from us and He can't hear us when we cry out. He's always nearby. One of the most beautiful psalms ever written is Psalms 139. It is beautifully written. In the midst of that psalm, as he declares, in fact, that I am fearfully and wonderfully made, the writer then turns and says, there's something else I want to talk about that I'm ever thankful for. And that is simply this. And he put it very plainly. If I ascend to heaven, if I make my bed in Sheol, if I take the wings of the dawn, or dwell in the depths of the sea. What did he say? Thou art there. And the writer did not say that because he was afraid that God's going to catch him doing something. That wasn't his point, even though we've, we've seen people use it that way. He's simply stating a fact of endearment. Wherever I am in life, no matter what station I'm in life, no matter whether it's a good time or bad, up or down, joy or sorrow, whatever it may be, thou art there. My Savior cares. Our lives are not wasted. Our lives are not futile because our God cares enough about us that no matter where we are in life, He is there. And the comforting thought to a child of God is this. When I cry out to my Heavenly Father and pray to Him through my Lord and Savior, we know the answers because Christ says, Hey, I walked with them. I know. Help them. I walked with them. He is always near. Peter must have thinking of this psalm when he wrote in 1 Peter 3 and 12, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. What did you just say, Peter? He hears us. No matter if we're crying out in agony and despair for him to help us, or we can barely whisper, 
hears us. He hears us. So God is always watching over us. He cares for us. He loves us. He keeps us in his arm and, the, and his protective care. And remind you something. There's only one way for you to move, uh, be removed from that protective care. You walk away. The only way to lose that protective care is simply to walk away. Because he protects us. Our lives are not futile when he watches over us. Basically what we're trying to tell ourselves and remind ourselves of this that we have a purpose for living. But not only do we have a purpose for living, we have a power to live by. Paul, you cannot say it any better. What is it? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, Paul's not telling us we do everything wrong. No. He's talking about everything we do as a child of God. In his cause, in his service, whatever it may be, one talent or multi, don't make any difference. We can do whatever we need to do for the cause of Jesus Christ because it is through Him who strengthens us. How do we strengthen? You got it right here. This mighty Word has the power and the ability to strengthen us each day we live on the face of the earth and we can face everything hurled against us. Our lives are never futile. But when we become a child of God and live as one, we live a life of strength and vitality. Because he lives, our lives are not futile. Because he lives, death's not final. We live, do we not, in a world that has a lot of mysteries and unknowns? There are some which we are still wondering how they happen, what caused it, or whatever. We may never know the answer. And we live in that world and we different people through the years have tried to, try to solve certain mysteries they have just found in our old world and even to this day they haven't found anything to give any conclusion of why or where or whatever. Some mysteries are still a mystery but mankind has slowly made little inroads and he's begun to uncover a little bit to give himself an idea of what may have caused this. Or what may have been part of the reason. He's uncovered a little. And he feels fairly successful. He may have not have solved the mystery. But yet he's been able to uncover a little something of it. So it's not quite as mysterious as it once had been. And he feels proud of himself. But death is still the greatest mystery of all to mankind. He hasn't been able to fully understand it. Look at all the resurrections found in the Word of God, both Old and New Testament. What is the one thing about all of them? It is the same. What is the one thing? They never told you what it was like on the other side. You know they were questioned. Don't kid yourself. We're humans are too curious, aren't we? We're like cats. We've got to know. You know they question them. You can imagine any one of them. We're talking any of them, any resurrection. You know they were questioned multiple, multiple times. And I guarantee you every time the answer was, I don't know or don't remember. I can't remember. So with all of that, we still don't know. 
even the most, the, what we consider of to be the greatest resurrection is not really, but the one most people think of is whom? Lazarus. You know he was questioned. But yet, he never told us, did he? He never told us. We know why. In some respects, it's simply the fact God raised that from their minds so they could never tell what it's like on the other side. Death remains that great mystery to mankind as a whole. To doctors, they pronounce you dead when either your brain quits functioning or the heart quits beating. That's about as far as they can go with it. They might tell you the cause of death, but that's basically it. When the mind and the heart quits, you're no longer among us. And man, and kind as a whole, we all know, is scared to death of death, are we not? Why we don't joke about it or make fun of it or belittle it or try to deny it? Why don't we at times hear people talk like they're going to outlive Methuselah? <laughs> because in their mind they don't want to think the thought of dying just scares them to death. But Hebrews 9.27 still reads the same, don't it? And as much as it is appointed for man to do what? Hebrew writer, die once. And after this comes the judgment. So what is he saying? Death is the reality that everyone must experience. We can't get away from it. There's no pill to take to keep from dying. We all are going to die. We know what physical death is. We understand it very plainly. We know it to mean the separation of the soul and body. In James 2.26, he said, Just as a body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. We understand that. It's, we can't comprehend it. We, it's hard to comprehend. That's what's going on. But we know it to be the fact and the truth. Solomon the wise man remind us, The dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit returned to God who gave it. Notice what the wise man of old said. The body. How was it created? What we've learned from Genesis 1? From what? The dust of the ground. Where was he going? Back to the dust in the ground. But the Spirit will go back to whom? God who gave it. God who gave it. If you don't believe that, let's emphasize that with four words found in Ezekiel 18 and verse 4. A phrase in that verse says, God said it and Ezekiel wrote it. All souls are mine. Don't ever forget that. Who created them? Who takes them back? All souls are mine. It's not Ezekiel's words. He wrote them. But the words from the mouth of God himself. But yet a Christian knows death is not final. At the scene in John 11 of the resurrection of Lazarus, Christ is obvious that he planned and delayed the trip for a purpose of raising Lazarus from the dead. And when he arrived, he knew what was going on already. He talking to the sisters, he just simply reminded them, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. 
He said this just before he raised Lazarus from the dead. He asked the sisters, did they believe? And they said, yes. You will live again. You'll live on the other side. In the eternal abode, either in the paradise or torment. But he was right. We will live on after this life is gone. Paul's attitude toward death as he wrote to his brethren at Philippi ought to be the attitude of every child of God. In chapter 1, verse 21, he said, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But he, he didn't stop there. kept going. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to, come, which to choose. For I'm hard-pressed between both from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Notice his Paul's dilemma. <laughs> this was his personal dilemma. But it ought to be the attitude of every child of God. For me to live is Christ, but to die is what? Gain. Paul says, I'm in a problem. I got a problem here. If I stay on on this earth, there's be more fruit. I'll be able to further the borders of the kingdom of Christ. Paul himself was the only one who ever said that every creature under heaven by the, to his brethren Colossae had heard of the name of Christ. It didn't mean they obeyed it. They knew who he was, though. Paul could at least say that. They knew who he was. Paul said, this is my job. This is what the Lord wants me to do. I'm going to carry it out. I'll do whatever he wants me to do to make sure the gospel is spread throughout the world. But... I had rather be in heaven. It is far better than being here. Here's the attitude he had. That would be the attitude of every child of God. They we ought to look at this life as temporary and whatever it faces, we'll get through it no matter what because God has made us strong by His love and care and concern. But the other side is far better. would John try to describe it in the end of the revelation? He's, he, he can't even find the words. <laughs> he can't really tell you what he's saying. It is beyond human words to describe this place called heaven. To a child of God, because he lives, death is not. And because he lives, failure will not ever be fatal. We know what fatal means, simply destruction, disasters, two words we could use to describe it. We know the fickleness of society because don't society, in society funny and how if someone becomes real, not, we're not talking through the lottery and that silliness and that garbage. We're talking about legitimate hard work. A person starts a company and through hard work over the years makes himself an extremely rich person off this business, legitimately making it. Done fine. Done a great job. Got a great business. He's successful throughout the world. The country would go, oh, ain't that nice? He went from rags to riches, so to speak. But do you want to really watch society cheer? and applaud, and give him a standing ovation, let him lose everything he's got. 
in society will stand up and applaud. If you don't believe it, just look what's been happening recently. Society would rather have you fail than be a success. That's the way they've always been. When it comes to sin, society, society simply says, oh no, there's nothing that's sinful. Uh-uh, no, 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 no. There's nothing sinful. That's just preacher's folk trying to scare you to death. No, 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 no. No, no, no. It's just mistakes people make. Really? Oh, it's just bad judgment on their part. They didn't think it through before they carried it out. Or maybe this just a sickness or a disease. Tell that to people who over the past year were rioted and burned. <laughs> Tell them it was just a sickness. But yet that's the way society is, isn't it? Nothing is ever really wrong. It's just a miscalculation in judgment. Or if you want it to be, you can say it's good to do that because you want to justify it. So in morality, society says, man is not a failure because there's nothing really wrong in that respect. But what do we do know? Man is, and man will ever be, basically sinful. That's his nature because he's ungodly and ungodlike. The wisest man who ever lived said in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 20, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Here's a man that asked God for wisdom. And the gracious God of heaven gave him wisdom beyond belief for that day and time, and no one has ever lived as wise as Solomon. Yet Solomon in his own lifetime as 40 years of the king of Israel did things that were not right. He sinned. And what did he end up by saying as he finishes up that marvelous book of Ecclesiastes? It was all what? Vanity. What should you do, he says? Remember your creator. When, Solomon? In the days of your youth. Why, Solomon? Because as you grow older, you will what? Not forget them. He knew. He had great knowledge that surpassed anyone of his day. Known also for his wealth. People came for miles to hear him, hear of his great wisdom. Yet he did sin, did he? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. In saying what? It was all vanity. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, it is, there it simply says by the Apostle Paul, as written, there is none righteous, not even one. Thirteen verses later, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In the seventh chapter and fourteenth verse of that same book, he says, man is a flesh sowed into the bondage of sin. No one is immune. No one is immune. If that was the case, why did the Great Commission tell us to go to all, into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? Not a select few. Not some chosen ones. 
but to the entire human race because that happens to every one of us. The good news is, as we know, that Christ suffered, paid the price. The penalty of death was on upon us, but Christ paid the price, died in our place. That's, again, hard to comprehend. Do you realize the God who placed the sentence of death on us died for us? You can't really fully comprehend that, can we? That is love we cannot even write down. But Paul, writing to his brethren at Corinth, made it very abundantly clear what's involved. When he said in chapter 15, beginning now, make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered you as the first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul, what did you just say? If it hadn't been for the death of Christ, our sins would have been fatal. That's exactly what he's saying. They're not because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It was shed on Calvary. That blood that has power, it's unmeasurable. Has the ability to cleanse no matter what anyone has ever done in their lives. In sin, that blood will cleanse it. It has that kind of power. Because of the death of the Son of God, God is just and can punish sins but also he is lovingly and merciful. And he will forgive sins when you comply to his terms of salvation. Because he lives, our lives are not futile, death is not final, failures are not fatal. As the Course says, because he lives, we can face all face today and all that it may bring to us before the bell at midnight rings and Monday begins. Because He lives, we can face all of the tomorrows that God allows each of us to live. But most importantly, because He lives, today is the day of salvation, now is the appointed time. If you're not a child of God, everything is ready for you to become one of His precious children this very hour. Come believing of all your heart that He is the Christ. He died for you. Confessing His sweet name before all that He is the Son of God. And to be buried in baptism and raised to walk in that new life. Everything is ready. But this afternoon, if you're a child of God who strays my truth, here's the opportunity to come home. Ask His forgiveness. He's promised you that he will forgive you. He's also promised you that he'll forevermore forget it as he wipes it clean with the blood of the Son of God. Think on this as while together we stand and while we sing.